Merry Christmas. <laughs> so last year, um, I was thinking about how at Easter, when you go to church, there's this little routine that happens where people will say, he is risen. And then people will respond, he is risen indeed. And I thought, why don't we have something like that for Christmas? And so I was feeling inspired by uh, John chapter 1, verse 5, which says that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I thought, well, when John was talking about that, he was talking about Jesus coming into the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And I thought, that, that might be a nice call and response for Christmas. So I tried it last year. As far as I know, it hasn't caught on. But I think we could try it again tonight. So, the light shines in the darkness. Okay, that was pretty good, pretty good. One more time. The light shines in the darkness. All right. Well, that verse comes from the first chapter of the book of John. And the first chapter of the book of John has been um, the inspiration, uh, the basis for our sermon series throughout Advent, which is called When the Word Became Flesh. In John's Gospel, it says that something called the Word in the beginning, the very beginning, was with God and was God. Try to wrap your head around that. And that when the time was right, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now that word, word, it comes from the Greek word logos. It's a term from Greek philosophy. And it's a little hard to translate, but it means something like the wisdom that made the cosmos. Or I like to put it as the mystery that generates and sustains reality. Now, a lot of religions believe in some kind of logos. They wouldn't necessarily call it that, but they believe in some form of logos. But what is so remarkable and unique about the Christian faith is that we proclaim that the logos, the mystery that generates and sustains reality, became a person. The one that we know as Jesus Christ. And each Sunday throughout Advent, we've been considering a different aspect of when the Word became flesh and what the significance of that is. So we looked at Jesus' genealogy. We talked about Jesus having an adoptive father and what that adoptive father, Joseph, was like. We talked about the virgin birth. And tonight, we're looking at the arrival. The arrival. And uh, we already heard through the scripture readings the details of that ar arrival. Uh, but let's, let's look a little bit more closely at what we heard. So I want us to start by imagining what it would have been like to be Mary and Joseph. So months before, both of them had been visited by an angel who told them that they would have a role to play in the Son of God's arrival into the world. And they knew that they were going to serve as parents to Emmanuel, which means God with us. They were going to be serving as parents to the one who would save people from their sins. 
<clears throat> and in the months since they had um, heard this, they had witnessed the Virgin Mary's pregnancy grow, which must have been remarkable. And now she was in her third trimester, and uh, Joseph was a carpenter, so I like to imagine that he had built a really nice crib for Jesus, um, you know, sanded the wood just perfectly, and it would rock, and, you know, I, I imagine he put a lot of time into something like that, trying to get it just right for this miracle child. And Mary was probably at that point in her pregnancy where it was impossible to be comfortable aches and pains and swollen ankles. And then they get this news. There's a census, and so you need to travel to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was about 90 miles away from Nazareth. So try to imagine that, 90 miles in the days before cars or buses or scooters or wheelchairs. I mean, even someone in perfect physical condition would probably take at least four days to make that trip. But a woman in her third trimester of pregnancy, whether she's riding on a donkey or walking, we don't know for sure, but either way, that is not going to take only four days. Um, I've heard people estimate that it probably took at least a week, a week-long journey. Now, can you imagine getting that notice. How upsetting would that have been? How frustrating. In those days when pregnancy was a lot more risky than it, was to, it is today, like hearing that you are now required to make a one-week trip out and then one week back in your third trimester. And think of also how upsetting it would be given the reason that you have to make this trip. Remember, the one who ordered this census is Caesar Augustus. That was the Roman emperor. So this census was a reminder that the Jewish people lived under the authority of a pagan emperor. And what is the purpose of a census? Well, I think the old King James Version puts it in such a way to make it clear. It says, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. I remember my dad reading that version to us as kids, and then he would add, and it has been that way ever since. <laughs> so Mary and Joseph have to travel 90 miles, both directions, in order to help a pagan emperor know how much they should be oppressively taxed in Mary's third trimester. Bah humbug, right? And I can imagine them wondering, God, are you even paying attention here? Did you forget about us? Don't you remember? Important baby here, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, could you maybe intervene so things go a little bit smoother? That'd be nice. So that things go according to plan. I mean, we set up a great midwife. Joseph made the crib. Come on. But the journey must be made. 
So they managed to traverse those 90 miles to Bethlehem. And of course, while they are there, they don't have time to get home. Um, Mary delivers. And she goes into labor, and I, I can imagine Joseph running around saying, you know, does anybody have a spare room? Does anyone have a guest room? And nothing is available. And so, uh, as Luke tells us, okay, no guest room was available to them. We don't know exactly where Mary gave birth, um, but it was not in the ideal circumstances, right? Because after Jesus is born, she places him in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. And again, I have to imagine that in, in that moment, they were wondering, God, are you paying attention? Have you forgotten about us? Where are you? Christmas is a time when we tend to want things to be just right. You know, maybe more so than any other day of the year. We want our family to all be there. We want the decorations to be up and just so. We want there to be certain foods and for certain traditions to be upheld. Um, we want to make sure that we purchase the right gifts, right? We want things to feel magical and perfect. Now, I have never watched a Hallmark Christmas movie. I'm sure some of you have. You know who you are. Um, but I've heard a little bit about them. And I saw a post on social media recently that has stuck with me. And it said, I was watching a Hallmark Christmas movie, and someone went up into their attic to get Christmas decorations. And the attic was already decorated with Christmas decorations. So I bring that up because movies like that set a very high bar for what we think Christmas should look like, right? Decorative lights everywhere, even in the attic where you almost never go. Perfectly shaped Christmas trees that never turn brown or lose a needle just the right amount of snow falling so that there's some accumulation, but, you know, it never prevents you driving somewhere. And it's always the, the light, fluffy stuff, right? Never the wet, slushy snow. Everyone in nice sweaters, very good haircuts, right? <laughs> Everything is just magical and perfect. And that sort of thing is a reflection of the fact that we tend to want everything to be magical and perfect this time of year. So, isn't it ironic that the first Christmas was such a mess? Nothing went according to plan. Right? At least not according to Mary and Joseph's plans. Things were anything but just right. And yet... The first Christmas went exactly the way that it was supposed to go. Because when the Logos became flesh, when the mystery that generates and sustains reality became a person, he wanted to show us that God is still near to us even when everything's a mess. God is still near to us when plans fall apart and governments are oppressive and people are inhospitable. God is still near to us when we need help, 
but no one around us seems to have the time or the room. The angel that came to Joseph said that the child that would be born would be called Emmanuel. And that's not a uh, proper name, right? Jesus is his name, but Emmanuel literally means God with us. And the angel said that this would be a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah had said. And when Jesus was born, he was Emmanuel, God with us, but in a deeper way than anyone would have expected. Okay, first, because he's literally God incarnate. The Word made flesh, the logos with skin on. Nobody could have predicted that. But secondly, he was God with us because from the beginning, he entered into the messiness of human life. His entrance into the world demonstrates that God is not just with the rich or the powerful or the respected. He's happy to identify with poor people suffering under unjust governments, with people who can't find a place to stay. And another sign of this is who first gets to hear the angel's announcement that he's arrived. It's shepherds, right? So how did people think of shepherds in those days? Well, at best, shepherds were thought of as ordinary, unremarkable, working-class kind of people. And at worst, they were looked down upon as unspiritual people who couldn't help but get dirty most of the time. Uh, one commentary I looked at said that many religious people would have looked down on shepherds because their work would have often kept them from participating in religious activities. Right? Because when you got to watch the sheep all the time, I mean, sheep never take a break. <laughs> they always exist when you're a shepherd, so it's hard to ever leave them. And yet, these are the people that the angels appear to, right? Because Jesus is God with us, not just with the rich or the powerful or the spiritual elites, although he most certainly can be with them too, but also with the humble, the poor, the downtrodden, the people who might not have the greatest reputation, the people who are struggling in life, Jesus reveals that God is with them, that God is with anyone who is willing to receive him. Right? As the angels said, they brought good news of great joy for all the people. Did Amazon not deliver your gifts on time? God is with you. <laughs> Do you have to work this Christmas? God is with you. Did you burn the Christmas turkey? God is with you. Did you get COVID or flu this year? God is with you. Did your power go out and your basement flood this week? That's me. God is with you. Did someone close to you pass this year? And all you can feel right now is the pain of their absence. God is with you. There are a couple other reasons why it's fitting that the announcement of the Savior's birth is made to shepherds. And they are because Jesus is the Lamb of God and he is the great shepherd. 
If you study scripture long enough, you start to realize that God is a poet. So there's something profound about shepherds being the first ones to find the Lamb of God and the Great Shepherd. Why is Jesus the Lamb of God? Well, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. To say that Jesus is the Lamb of God is to say that he is similar to the lambs that were slaughtered in the story of the Exodus. Don't have enough time to get into that, but if you know it, you know it. If you don't, look into it. Um, in that story, the Hebrew people slaughtered lambs and then they put the blood on the doors, doorposts of their homes. And because they did that, it kept death from coming into their homes. Jesus is the Lamb of God because his sacrifice given for us keeps eternal death from coming into our homes. His sacrifice forgives us of our sins and breaks the power of death in our lives. And then second, Jesus is the great shepherd. Because, as he says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And when we choose to listen to his voice, he leads us in the way that we should go. And he does the dirty, unglamorous work of guiding us through our messy lives, always working to bring healing, redemption, life, and peace. So this Christmas, whether things feel just right or not, I want you to know the peace that the angels proclaimed that night. I want you to know the great joy that they announced for all people. And the way to know it is this. Have faith that Jesus really is the Logos made flesh that he really is the mystery that generates and sustains reality, breaking into our world and showing us what God is like. Because if that is true, God's with us. And the God who is with us is both the lamb that takes away the sins of the world and the great shepherd. A lamb who dies to save us from death, and a shepherd who guides us toward eternal life. There was no room in the inn that night. But the one who was born that night would one day say, In my father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has prepared a place for us, and Jesus, the great shepherd, can lead us there. Amen. Lord, we thank you for that special night long ago when you were born into this world. The mystery of the incarnation, Jesus, fully God, fully human, united in a person. Lord, help us to appreciate the wonder of that this Christmas. And Lord, we... Uh, we want to recognize tonight together that you can be present in the messiness of our lives, that in that messiness, uh, you can still be the great shepherd that guides us through it all. Um, we celebrate that, Lord. We thank you that you are Emmanuel, that you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen.